Hey folks, what's up? This is Johnny. Thanks for tuning back in to one of the Owens Recovery Science podcasts here. And so today, I think we got another great podcast for you. And, and, and we're going to really talk about a cool topic. It's how is a little bit of stress actually a good thing? It's this hormetic uh, kind of talk that people say that the body needs a little stress, doesn't need a lot of stress, but short doses actually make things tougher and can make things better. And so we can really cause a significant short amount of stress by inducing hypoxia into a limb through our blood flow restriction. And, and from that, there's all sorts of pathways that we're going to keep talking about and hitting on that can maybe uh, be beneficial for us as clinicians. And, and a big one from this, this little bout of hypoxia is the ability to create angiogenesis. Um, and, and, you know, who, who doesn't need some, some more capillary beds out there and even a, a neuroprotective role and a neuroregenerative role that we might be able to induce as well. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. Very easy for us to actually pull off at BFR, it, it seems. So we're going to kind of take a little bit of a deep dive into that. And then I'm going to have an interview with my, my buddy, Drew Marcos, who's a physical therapist out in La La Land. Um, he's got a cool facility called Modus out there that, that he runs, kind of uh, takes care of all these pro athletes and, and you know, the big movie stars or whatever those folks do out in California. Um, so we're going to talk about how he's incorporating BFR in his, in his facility. Um, and, and also, we want to really discuss this, this very cool partnership we have with, with him and, and Owens Recovery Science and Air Jordan with their new Jumpman 23 facility in downtown LA, which is not only the place to check out all the coolest and greatest Air Jordans on the first floor, but has the world's first and only glass basketball court on the top floor. And even more importantly, the, the whole NBA experience on the second floor with, with what a lot of the NBA athletes will go through, including uh, blood flow restriction with, with some of our stuff there. So it's an exciting podcast. Thanks again for listening to it. If you like us, please uh, rate us on, on iTunes. Give us, give us a what's up. Um, leave comments. That's great, too, with any feedback. If you have questions, please send them in to info at owensrecoveryscience.com. We'll send you a, a nice T-shirt, an Earn Your Deflate T-shirt. And um, if you want to find out more about us, go to owensrecoveryscience.com. And that's, that's a lot of requests. What, what a jerk, man. So I'm done. Let's roll into the fun stuff. All right. Thanks. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Hosted by physical therapist, Johnny Owens. What's up, podcast listeners, and welcome back. It's been a while. It's been a while since our... Uh, Tori says, I say it's been a while nonstop in this podcast. So every time I do it, I'm going to use the... It's been a while voice. So welcome back to our Owens Recovery Science Podcast. We've got our same core group of guys back again. Ben Weatherford, Zach Dunkel... And Kyle Kimball, it's it's just too early today. I couldn't come up with good nicknames for you guys again. So, um, what's up, everybody? Everyone back in their in their hometowns today? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So so today it's going to be a fascinating pathway kind of talk, and this is something that, that we're very interested in, and, and have some folks looking at some some research with us as well. And and that's this this hypoxic kind of upregulation you can make with something called HIF-1A, um, hypoxia inducible factor. Um, and, and maybe even more importantly, maybe not as importantly, we'll discuss that, vascular endothelial growth factor. And, and, and it's fascinating because these are very powerful pathways that, that do things like angiogenesis, potentially neuroprotection, and, and all sorts of other things that, that might be beneficial that, that we can control just by creating these hypoxic states. And so we'll, we'll mechanistically talk about it and, and you 
what clinicians might want to think about more than I'm just occluding for, for muscle size and hypertrophy. And Zach Dunkel, this is like his best day ever because if we do have a nickname, he's Zach Vidjeff Dunkel. So we're going to lean on Zach to really get into the, the deep dive. And, and if he goes full on Rain Man, we'll, we'll pull him back in because um, we don't want to lose <laughs> listeners uh, <laughs> at, at the 20th minute. <laughs> Anyways, uh, where we've been in this BFR world recently, I think it's just always cool to see the the growth of this. So uh, I'll, I'll kick off. I've been home for two weeks. Again, it's awesome, man. But uh, w- when I'm home, you know, it's it's like we gotta we gotta get things really moving here. So so it's Asia week, um, and so we we solidified moving into Asia. Taiwan's our our, uh, our, our first country that, that we'll have, uh, we have new trainers, distribution and, and all sorts of things there. So Andy, um, the head guy, and that's not, he's, he's got a, I think a fake American name he uses cause I can't pronounce his, his real name flew in from Taiwan, uh, to finalize it. So we're, we're moving out there. Then I speak Friday at the annual conference for TPTA doing a, a two hour talk on blood flow restriction. And then Jump on a plane Saturday morning to, to South Korea. Jump on a plane Saturday morning, Sunday night. I end up in South Korea. Monday morning, jump up, teach, and then Monday night, pass out probably. Um, hopefully get a little bit of kimchi in and then jump on a plane again um, and head back. So doing a bunch of military bases there. So so that that's my upcoming. I, I was in Portland, Maine. Have you guys been to Portland, Maine before? No, no. never. Dude, it, I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, they, like ACSM in Boston a few years ago, I, I had that extra time because we were working with the Patriots about four or five days later. So I drove up to Portland, Maine, and, and man, fell in love with it. So um, we ran a course there. But Columbus weekend is the last actual like real real kind of weekend there, and they shut everything down pretty much after that. So we did the course huh. um, not knowing it on Columbus weekend. You roll into town, and there's like all these cruise ships there, and trains are coming in. And it's like the invasion of, of the old people all over the place. Um, there was like 900,000 old people. And so uh, anyway, so it, was a, it was a little bit uh, crazy with that, but, but we had a cool course up in the Northeast. What about you, Kyle? Where you been and what you been up to? Um, let's see. I'm, at the end of September, I was out in Overland Park, Kansas, or basically Kansas City. Um, I had some of that, that Kansas city barbecue, Johnny, and you know, it was, it was not Texas barbecue. It was, it was was better than what, it was better than what you can get in California. I promise you that. Well, everything Um, is, but it was not, well, I mean, you know, for Mexican food out here is good. You got to give us that. Like the Tex-Mex thing, you just have to take a nap. You can't eat that midday. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then last weekend I was, um, or excuse me on, well, on Friday last week I was at, uh, this the Air Force Base in Tucson, uh, Davis Montan, 48th Rescue Troop. They're the pararescue guys. Yeah, so they have a big uh, boneyard of of airplanes out there of, yep. of, of airplanes that aren't like totally decommissioned, so we could ramp back up if something gets crazy internationally. Um, and so that was that was really fun. I got a little bit better understanding of kind of this high performance direction that um, the military. Um, troops and or battalions i don't even know the right word you guys are the the abbreviation people i don't i don't know how it goes but um but uh so they were kind of telling me how that's all all been going and that was fun and then in in that course um you know my my astros lost the the night before that course so i was a little depressed and my bitmoji popped up there and sure enough there's a dadgum red Sox fan in my in my course (laughs) they're all over man just 
blistered me all all day long. Finally showed up after the last break in a Red Sox cap to, to just kind of cap off the the day. So um, it ended on a low note, but uh, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun working with, with Red Sox. Are good man. I, th- I think they're going to take it. They're just uh, they're they right really they look really tough and. Um, their PT, Adam Thomas, a really, really good dude. He's got a better, uh, better beard than I, I'll admit that. I won't admit that for, for wow. Dunkel though. That's impressive. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and then we got, I got a course coming up here at my, at my clinic in, in California in Camarillo on November 10th. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. We should have a good, a good crew of people. I got a couple of my PTs here that we need to certify that are newer to the game. And, um, so really looking forward to just hosting at our course and, <laughs> So anybody interested in, in California, get over to Kyle's course. Our California courses yeah. always are awesome, yeah. and um, so and, yeah. And this one, Johnny, I got a brewery right next door to me, so I'm I'm just putting out there. I'm buying, <laughs> I'm buying beers after the course. Beers are on me the first round. So if you want to come to that course, come on, and you can have good beer after. Why are you waiting for Sand. after? Well, I'm, I might not be waiting. For after, <laughs> <laughs> Cool. What about what about you, Zach? Uh, yeah, so I was just up in Baltimore uh, last weekend at Sinai Hospital. Uh, really, really good group of folks. The, the head guy up there, uh, big total knee researcher, um, re- really interested in the um, kind of the fibrotic suppression that we may be able to get from um, from use, the use of BFR yeah. uh, with with specifically t- total knees in that population because that's like that's a huge thing. Um, that we see a lot of times is that muscle just becomes very, very arthrofibrotic uh, after the surgery. So the, the potential to limit that, uh, restore muscle function, and then obviously that population is going to be the older population. So they, they were um, all pretty fascinated with the uh, geriatric effects. And we talked about the new systematic review and meta-analysis that was just published last week as well. Which had amazing um, effect sizes. So that was uh, that was impressive. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what, what were the numbers talking, on that? Yeah, o- over two. When we're talking strength training with low intensity, and then when we're talking walk training, where effect size is over three for increases in size and strength of the muscle, which is just phenomenal. And then even when we talk high high intensity training, which is going to be limited in the, in the, uh, the geriatric folks, um, but BFR produces superior hypertrophy changes to. Um, to high intensity training, which, which we, we kind of know that from, yeah. um, you know, j- the young folks, but it's really great to see because, you know, that'll go into a little bit of what we talk about today with, you know, the atrophy and what drives potentially one of the theories that what drives um, atrophy within the, uh, the geriatrics, but either way, uh, then this weekend headed to Ohio to a, a hospital, uh, system up there for an open course. And then, um, uh, the next weekend I'm headed up to New York city. So should be pretty good. Nice. Hitting a lot of the hospital systems. And so that I, I love seeing this move into the geriatric population. And I guess piggybacking on our last podcast with Kevin Tipton, we had two cool things come out. We had the BFR systematic review and meta-analysis showing these monster effect sizes with BFR walking and, and strengthening and, and even superior hypertrophy compared to high load, which is great for that population. And then a paper in JBJS that, if you supplement with uh, protein, basically after joint replacement, then um, they saw superior results in, in sparing of muscle after these total joints. And so it, it was funny because a, a buddy of mine said he, he talked to his doctor about protein and, and after a, a surgery that his mom had just had. And, and the doc told him, you know, eh, I don't really think that's going to change anything. And then uh, 
the day after that JBGS paper came out. So yeah. I sent it his way and I'm like, maybe, maybe he'll listen to JBJS if he doesn't listen to you, man. So that's good stuff. Weatherford. Yeah, that was, that was pretty. Sorry, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that that's what Ben and I were just talking about the other day. I mean, uh, the atrophy, the amount of atrophy we see on the surgical side in the group that was taking the supplemental protein yeah. was the same as what we saw on the control side that did not have, or in the control group that did not have surgery on, on that side. I mean, it, it was phenomenal. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, so, so simple and so ignored. Um, so hope people listen to that last podcast. It's great. And Kevin Tipton's one of the leaders in the world on this stuff. All right, Ben, what's up with you, man? Well, um, I recently was in Chicago, did a course up there with Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, and then went up to Kenosha, Wisconsin the weekend after that. So I could have just stayed for the week and, and driven an hour and a half, but I, I flew all the way back here and then flew back up. So, and then, you know, coming up this, this next weekend, not the weekend before Halloween, but the weekend after that, uh, I'll be in Stewart, Florida. Uh, and then I'll be over in St. Louis at Wash U the weekend after that. So pretty, pretty cool going over to Wash U. Excited about that. That's where both my parents went to college. So fun to go over there and do a course. Yeah. At Wash U, um, they're part of our femur fracture trial. So one of the nine centers, part of the major extremity trauma research consortium, BFR study that we have going, uh, Wash U is, is one of those sites. So they, they're actually doing research with us. And, and, and when I have closed eyes and warm fuzzies for Wash U because Dr. Matt Matava, when he was the Rams doc, was was the guy who said, hey, will you come bring your BFR talks into the NFL Combine years ago? And, and so, oh, Matt Matava, uh, <laughs> a, a lot of thanks because <laughs> post-Combine, man, uh, that, that was uh, my phone just blew up. So anyways, awesome stuff, man. All right. Well, sounds like no one's going to get a break. Uh, we're going to keep pounding it. I think I win for having to go to freaking South Korea for a few days. Um, <laughs> my, my wife's not happy. I'm still supposed to schedule the United Kingdom and Jordan this year, which I don't think it's going to happen. So uh, anyways. Yeah, you're running a time crunch there on that one. I know. We need more days in the month. So, okay, let's get into this topic here. Vascular endothelial growth factor and HIF-1A. So, so let, let's kind of break this down. The body has areas that are normoxic and they have areas that become more hypoxic. And so if, if you look at arterial blood, it's about 14% oxygen, uh, physiologic oxygen, PO2. Myocardium is, is around 10%. And then most tissues of the body kind of hover around 5%. But, but then you go into cartilage and bone, and it's around 1%. O2. So it's a, it's a very hypoxic state. And, and so there's, there's things you can maybe coat out of bone. So some, some of the cellular niches like the mesenchymal stem cells or progenitor cells, they like that hypoxic area. But, it, but if we make the soft tissue hypoxic, then there's like this drift or bloom where they, they can kind of get coaxed out. And so there, there's other things in the body that if you bring on hypoxia, then you coax out these pathways to kick in. And, and so it, it's kind of interesting because when we're developing, we're in a very hypoxic state. When, when we're embryos in the womb, that hypoxia drives a lot of uh, the growth of, of the vascular trees and, and capillary beds and, and, and neural growth. And so that's one reason preemies might have a hard time. They, they leave a hypoxia state and go into a normoxic state. And so I just want to hit this mechanistically. If you have an area that becomes a bit hypoxic 
And so let's say we, we start to put on new muscle. So, so let's go back to this, you know, the geriatric stuff here. If these people start to add some more muscle, they have more tissue that is becoming a bit hypoxic because it doesn't have the supporting vascularity and, and the, the nervous structure to feed that new tissue. So whenever something goes a little bit hypoxic, this thing called hypoxia-inducible factor, which is, for one thing, it's the master regulator of angiogenesis, HIF will start to come out. And its first goal is to say, okay, acutely, we're low oxygen in this area. I'm coming out. How do, how do I increase oxygen? So one of the first things that HIF does is it, it kicks in the NO cascade. And, and when the NO cascade um, nitric oxide comes in, then, then you get this relaxing of, of the smooth muscle and more oxygen will automatically start to drift out. And then it, it, it shifts things into more of a glycolytic um, metabolism. But, but long term, what it really wants to do and, and what it does is vascular endothelial growth factor also comes out and, and that promotes angiogenesis. And, and so there's times as you are adding muscle, if you're lifting heavy, the squeeze of the, of the muscle contractions alone creates a, a hypoxic state because the muscle contraction is strong enough um, that it basically squeezes off the vessels. The soft tissue gets a little bit more hypoxic. So as you're, as you're adding more muscle, that hypoxia kicks in HIF-1A and vascular endothelial growth factor. So that's kind of, that's kind of it from the angiogenic side. And, and so I, I guess the easy takeaway here is we can make a limb hypoxic very, very easily with blood flow restrictions. You know, we go in, we, we know how much pressure to put on there and, and we get full hypoxia. We back it down a bit. And that hypoxia alone is what stimulates HIF-1A and what also kicks out VEGF. And, and we've seen that. The BFR studies that have measured VEGF have shown that it's significantly upregulated after you do BFR. Uh, Steve Patterson's group showed that there's increased capillary capillarity in the calf muscles in older people just by doing some BFR uh, calf presses. Julie Hunt's group showed increased capillarity um, 14% or so after doing you know, BFR for several weeks. Um, and individuals as well. That's my kind of 10,000 foot view of, of this hypoxia and the way we make HIF-1 and VEGF come out. You guys kind of give me your thoughts and, and let's move in a little bit to what about the neuroprotection that we can see from this? Yeah, so that, that's the big thing, I think, from muscle the muscle standpoint and, um, you know, kind of just a little bit of continuation with that. One of the things that with the geriatric population, why we really think that we see BFR is so effective at increasing muscle size and whatnot is that, you know, the, the amount, the amount of atrophy that comes out of the geriatrics is typically in type two fibers or yeah. And then if, if you look at type one fibers across young and old, there's typically not a whole lot of atrophy that goes on or the difference really isn't that significant. The other thing that we see with geriatrics is the change in capillary density and that, that change in capillary density or capillary contacts with muscle fiber is significant in type two fibers. And so what we think happens is basically if we can create that hypoxic state, we can increase uh, capillary density to um, those type two fibers that ultimately then will lead to an increase in satellite cell activation. Because the other thing that we see with uh, the satellite cell content that becomes activated versus just stays in their dormant state, those that become activated are a lot closer to capillary bed. So if we can increase capillary density, we should be able to further increase satellite cell activation, which then leads to a greater um, basal protein uh, synthesis, 
ultimately helps to hypertrophy that muscle. I think right. so from the muscle standpoint, I think that's, um, that's the big mechanism that we see. And, then, and I think it gets confusing, you know, you know when people say in satellite cells and all this stuff. So basically it's, it's not the right way to say it, but we can say the muscle stem cells like to live near yeah. the capillary beds. So if you're adding capillary beds, then the, the, as the density increases, we are probably increasing density of muscle stem cells and, and the muscle stem cells are the regulators of muscle repair, regeneration, and and long-term growth. So adding capillary beds good. And and, and I think I think that's what's almost bigger at times. And, and and people I don't think think about this enough. If if we add capillary beds and, and a- increased angiogenesis a- along with muscle, that's the angiogenesis and capillary beds might be the really important driver for a lot of our, our health issues that we're looking at. So Increase content, right? Yeah. Decreased um, fluid yeah. flow dynamics because now you have, if you have more area for the fluid to move throughout the limb, um, these pre-hypertensive states that you see um, in, later in life uh, are, are reduced. And, and, and then, you know, on top of that, then as you're creating more muscle, obviously you have something to soak up more glucose for our diabetics and things like that. Yeah, and I mean, if we're yeah. also thinking about muscle endurance being a big issue as we, we get older, you know, those increased capillary beds, of course, are going to have increased oxygen transport to the muscle and allow for for more perfusion of the muscle, keep those those type 1s, you know, fed a little longer. Right. And, it, and that's what's crazy. You know, if now as clinicians, we can say, okay, I'm, I'm also doing this treatment to increase your capillary density. You can be like, holy hell, how, how are you going to do that? What drug? It's like, well, well, it's not a drug. It's a pathway. And if I can put your limb in a hypoxic state, then I kick in HIF-1A, I kick in VEGF, and angiogenesis happens. It, it's, it's, it's beautifully basic, you know? Find the pressure. Mm-hmm. Get, you know, it probably needs to be a, a decent amount of uh, hypoxia to make it happen. But that, that's the direction I would love to see us looking at, uh, not with just with BFR, but, but as rehab professionals, is, is we're doing these treatments to, to actually target some of these pathways. Yeah, that's the key is that the tissue has to be in a hypoxic state because what we see is, you know, you, you talked initially there in the intro about, you know, just going, let's just say squats, for example, at a high intensity. Yeah, we create a hypoxic state within the muscle, but what we see from that is that that HIF one A or hypoxic inducing factor one A that typically is degraded under normoxic conditions within about five minutes, mm-hmm. um, and then we have you know there's there's a few different studies that have looked at BFR or the ischemic preconditioning where we create a real hypoxic state. Um, one of the studies from Larkin's group showed that you know BFR or um, VEGF upregulated out to 24 hours and. It, four hours post it was upregulated fourfold. So we have a pretty substantial impact on this and it's something that we can easily do. We can safely do it. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting too, there's the reverse. So if you're in chronic hypoxia, then, um, then bad things can happen. And so there's conditions where, you know, a, a, a diabetic who is in these low oxygen states um, diabetic retinopathies, they, they have too much VEGF on board and, and there's too much angiogenesis in their eyes and then they develop this, you know, they develop blindness. Same thing with these macular degenerations. So those people have way too much hypoxia chronically, which is bad. And, and, then, and then the other is, you know, if you look at something like tumor growth, so a cancer cell grows rapidly, which means that it, it has to 
feed nutrients to, to its growth. So it, it starts to do whatever it can to, to drive angiogenesis and increasing VEGF in, in those type of situations or HIF-1A um, can, can make those things worse. And, and so both those, both those groups are on our contra list um, because we just don't know right now. You know, we have the, the diabetic study hopefully starting over in Germany so we can get a little better insight into what happens with them. But, but chronic hypoxia, bad, acute, short bouts of hypoxia, which is kind of naturally seen by the body, is good. So then let's, let's, let's shift this way. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. We can get an angiogenic response if we can get a, an acute bout of hypoxia. Um, HIF-1A comes out, VEGF comes out, capillary beds grow. Zach, you take this away, Rain Man. On, on, so what's the neuroprotective side, and, and how does this affect nerves? Yeah, so we look at it from two, two different ways, an indirect mechanism and then a direct mechanism. The direct mechanism is literally when we can upregulate VEGF, VEGF has neuroprotective effects that we literally can limit cell death. And then the other thing is we see we can stimulate neurogenesis, so we can stimulate nerve growth simply from having VEGF present. So not only is VEGF an angiogenic uh, growth factor, but it also has neurogenic growth factor abilities as well. The indirect effect, we're looking from a neural standpoint, we're looking at the stimulation of angiogenesis. We can increase glucose uptake. So if we have, let's just say, a hypoxic situation such as maybe stroke or um, you know brain injury, something like that, we can actually increase through permit through increasing the permeability of the vascular tissue. We can extract greater amounts of glucose across that membrane, and then we have antioxidant um, effects as well as an indirect mechanism. Okay, yeah, and so that's interesting, and, and so. I mean, something that's, that's fascinating, too, is the, the talk that even TIAs, transient ischemic attacks, are the body's own protective mechanism to avoid a full-on stroke. And so that's a, a, yeah. a quick hypoxic event as your body is, is trying to say, uh-oh, something bad's happening. Let's, let's do this preconditioning bout. And, and, and so that's, that's the, the two kind of clinical things to think about here. The little amounts of stress or hormesis, which hormesis is a small amount of stress that makes cells and things tougher, are good. And, and so if you look at hypoxia is a, is a small amount of stress that, that, that buffers the body for things that might happen, then you've got preconditioning. And so clinicians, the only way that we can probably control from an injury state, preconditioning is pre-surgical type stuff. You know, someone's Get ready to go in for surgery. Let's do some preconditioning. It, it might be right before surgery, like we've seen with the pain response. You know, people who do just tourniquets for multiple bouts right before surgery uh, have less narcotic use after after gallbladder surgery, have less pain after total joint surgery. Or it could be weeks of preconditioning where they come in, do some prehab, and they're they're getting these hypoxic events. Not only getting the limb stronger, but but there might be some preconditioning that we're doing. And then there's post-conditioning, and, and that is giving it stress after the events. And, and there's interesting, you know, all sorts of that out there that there's post-conditioning effects that, that we can get from things. And so from the from the neural side, you know, we're, we're probably, as, as clinicians, going to see more of a post-conditioning applied where someone's had this injury, they come in, you're, you're doing BFR, or some sort of ischemic preconditioning to cause this hypoxia and hopefully get a neuroregeneration. So what do, you, what do you think, Zach, from a preconditioning to postconditioning kind of thought process? Yeah, so um, we're limited with preconditioning studies, and I, and I think the translation to a human model is, is limited from a preconditioning. The, the only way that I think 
you know, we really see a true effect with preconditioning potentially would be in, in say a high risk population of maybe athletes. So if we take the concussion model and we take this traumatic brain injury from that standpoint, and if we precondition them prior to the game, do we see a change that, that we don't know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when it comes to decreasing the severity of a stroke, we are limited from a preconditioning side simply because we can't predict when someone's going to have a stroke. But we do know from the animal models that if we do precondition, we significantly uh, decrease the area of cell death. And then this area of what's called the penumbra, which is this area that is um, still viable and still alive, but it's just metabolically inactive. And that is, it's, it's significantly smaller as well. So we have a, a, a big win there, the avenue. And, and so some people would, would say, well, how do we precondition the brain, right? Because you can't go in there and just plant one of those cerebral arteries. What we look at from a remote standpoint, mm-hmm. and basically, can we, can we do conditioning in the arms or in the legs and to produce this response? And I think we can. Yeah, looks um, like it. the the mechanism, yeah, the, the mechanism is it's a it's a hum, it's called a humoral mechanism, and literally what that means is we produce these these uh, remote blood throughout the body, um, and we've seen uh, preceding a total knee surgery where we occlude in the leg, um, we have increased uh, cerebral oxygenation out to twenty four hours. I believe the study showed, so that's a good positive thing, and that was done in the leg, and then. So from a post-conditioning standpoint, we're seeing emerging data that if we do post-conditioning, we can have a pretty significant impact even, you know, after the stroke and after this, the, the damage has been um, done. Yeah. Yeah. So we lost you a little bit there, Zach. You broke up, but I, I think we got the gist of it. And so totally agree. I mean, in, in that animal model post-conditioning, there was, there was hematoma resolution, right? For, for, the, yeah, and, and that was, for the stroke. And that, and that was huge. That, that was huge. So it was a subdural or yeah, uh, a hematoma. And the cool thing that they really did with that study was they literally created the insult in a naive rat. And then they sewed the two legs, hind legs of the rat together and they conditioned one rat. And then we see this advantageous effect in that, in a rat that was not conditioned. So that really establishes the point that it's these humoral factors that are produced and then just travel in the blood. Um, yeah. we, we have seen that as we've seen that as well with rabbits. They, they've done a complete blood transfusion and then they create the insult. It was, I believe it was a heart attack or an MI in a, in a, a rabbit that was not conditioned, but once that blood is transfused, it, it creates a protective effect. So pr- pretty fascinating. I do believe though that we can have a, a remote effect um, and it can be pretty powerful. Yeah, remotes, remotes, awesome. Um, and you know that that study with the rats, it's those pictures are bananas of of they made them the little Siamese twins rats, um, suturing them together. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. But um, but yeah, remote is obviously the way we want to go. And, and and again, remote just means we do we cause hypoxia usually in a limb to help a, an organ distant from it. Because if you man, some of these early ischemic preconditioning animal trials, you know, they would clamp off blood flow to the brain and then cut the yeah. the animal's head off. <laughs> and and the ones that had the yeah. uh, ischemic preconditioning prior, you know, their their heart would keep pumping for longer, um, and and their their organs would live longer. Versus the rats that did it, they would just or the animals that did it, they would just die right away. So 
we won't we won't do those in human models, obviously. But I put in a a, a tourniquet or or something to cause hypoxia on a limb um, in someone remotely is, is very very easy. And and even the Wash U, you know, they just had the stroke trial looking at it. If they did it in the upper extremity, could they change balance scores? So let's wrap this up here. I, I think the one thing that that's a, a clinical kind of takeaway is. When you're doing BFR on your patient, this isn't just the get yoked, hey, I'm getting my patient pumped up response. When you are putting them into this hypoxic state, and, and again, that's why we think it's very important that people are, are knowing what pressures are causing hypoxia, and we're standardizing this across the boards. Because, you know, again, our goal is to, to get very sciencey in, in the clinics and, hey, I'm going to do, you know, I got to get you to 80% or 60% limb occlusion pressure because we've seen now in, in these trials that that's the that's the kind of threshold to, to make HIF-1A kick in and VEGF uh, subsequently kick in. But when your patients are getting into that hypoxic state, you're, you're creating capillary beds and angiogenesis. And then there's also potentially a neuroprotective effect, um, which, which could be huge and, and also regeneration of nervous tissue. Does that all sound like I'm not talking a bunch of BS? Sometimes I do. That sounds good, Johnny. I think the, the question I would have, just from an application perspective, would be, you know, in this situation, if we are trying to, in the situation we're trying to manipulate this hypoxic state, do we tend to maybe bias towards extremity exercise, uh, more hypoxia that we would do, obviously, with an 80% restriction than say in an upper extremity where we go 40 to 50 um, yeah. is that more powerful and, and and how do we how do we use that in, in the clinic to kind of achieve the goals that that we are wanting to achieve um whether it be bone health whether it be neuroprotection um, hypertrophy etc yeah it, it's very hard to study too because i mean we see it from you know the stem cell work we're doing you, you get these like multiple windows that that happens so immediately after you might get a spike but five hours later or 24 hours later there might be even a bigger spike and so then it's like how many how many blood draws we have to do to test where these spikes are happening to know exactly where it is but the positive thing is is those basic science trials you know we typically need a, a very small in so it's not like our big randomized controlled trials we, we can we can test this in smaller numbers so it doesn't get so okay. bright. Well, and I think piggybacking off what you're talking about, Kyle, I, I just came across an article yesterday that was talking about exercise in and of itself being a form of preconditioning. Yeah. You know, and it, it kind of goes yeah. to <clears throat> the hormetic response that Johnny was talking about, you know, creating enough of a stress where it puts the body in this, you know, again, like you've said, Kyle, a, a survival type mechanism. Say, okay, we, we just went through this thing. It was really rough. We've got to be prepared for the next time that it happens. And so maybe, you know, right. what is the required pressure? How much hypoxia do we really need? And, and what exercise components really get us to this point of we need to kick in survival mechanism and, and respond and adapt for the next time that this stress happens? Yeah, I agree with that, Ben. I think like when Zach, um, and I forgot we did give Zach a nickname, by the way, it's Penumbra. Yeah, um, I knew he would try it earlier. He was going to work um, that in. He was going to work it in, yeah. Um, so two things I, I knew he so, would do is use the word penumbra, <laughs> and he would talk about the little Siamese animals. So those are yeah, those he, are like, I think he's going to slip. <laughs> he thought he was going to slip that bias, but it didn't work. That. Um, yeah, but that was the thing hey, I had to be. You get in the car, Zach? What on earth, man? How in the world is going to work, man? Hey. I'm I'm waiting on the full endorsement of VEGF. I 
you know, veg up is key. Hey, I'm, I've been on board with that for a while, Ben. Um, but I, I, Ben, I, I like your point, and, and I had that thought too when Zach was talking about um, the neuroprotective effect. It just seems like a really kind of strong support for routine exercise, you know, just overall all health and, and exercise being such a such a key, not necessarily just BFR exercise, but exercise in general. So um, I think, you know, that's kind yeah. of what we see in there for sure. Yeah. And it looks like, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for, for preconditioning. If there's some, some stuff, you know, available, you know, if we could obviously predict that, that would be awesome. If we could say something's going to happen, so we're going to precondition for it. Um, but it looks like, you know, the post conditioning, which Johnny, you know, mentioned, that's probably our, our main right. target, you know, that looks really powerful, you know, both locally and systemically potentially. All right. So let's wrap this up and put a bow on it. Um, Short bouts of hypoxia are probably beneficial um, in most populations. And so there's some groups that obviously probably have too much of these factors running around. Um, and we don't know yet the diabetics and, and the cancer patients for one. But by us being able to, to do these short bouts of hypoxia, where we're really able to maybe tap into some powerful things as clinicians. I mean, people are even like, well, I don't want to cause a little hypoxia because it's going to make the wound not heal. Well, no, I, you know, a short bout of hypoxia is probably increasing capillarity and increasing angiogenesis, which is what the wound needs. And so that alone is, is a whole fascinating topic. And I think we can all agree if one a and VEGF are as, as Zach's been pounding the table, very powerful, and we're hoping to get a lot more studies trying to understand that to bring this more into our clinical pathways. So hypoxia good for short bouts, hypoxia chronically not good. We're going to have to dial in and know what our target hypoxia is, I think, to get a, a true effect. Everyone agree? Yep. Yes. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to move into to my interview today with, with my buddy, Drew Air Jordan's Morcos. Um, and so he's out in LA and in Kyle's area and he has a really cool clinic out there and sees all these high end athletes and movie stars and rock stars, but also he and I are part of it. He's really the big driver and the main part of it, um, of, of partnering with air Jordan's new facility in LA, which, which looks like an amazing place in downtown LA. So we're, we're going to talk about the new air Jordan partnership and, and what, what Drew does to, to make Drew kind of special out there. So talk to you guys in just a bit when we're done with this and go over our podcast questions. And welcome to our interview in the expert. Uh, I've got my man, Drew Morcos, coming all the way to us from, from the beautiful West Coast. Um, and, and so Drew and I have, have been friends friends for a while here, and, and he's, a, he's a physical therapist out in, in the Newport Beach area, and he's doing some amazing stuff at, at Modus, which is his uh, physical therapy clinic out there. And so let me let me just get into your your bio, Drew. It's gonna this is gonna take like thirty minutes because this guy's freaking bio. You can see how much <laughs> how much stuff he has on here, dude. So for one thing, can you get more alphabet suit behind your name, Drew Marcos, PT, DPT, OCS, SCS, DNS, ATC, CSC, SFAO, MPT is the president CEO of Modus Specialist Physical Therapy, which is in Newport Beach. Um, he takes care of all sorts of high-profile people, professional clients um, from sports and uh, rock stars and movie stars, et cetera, and, and, and also probably just the, the working-class stiff. But some of the people he works with, uh, Russell Wilson, I, I know they're tied, Antonio Brown, 
Carmelo Anthony, Steve Johnson from Golf. So he's, he's, he's got these guys that seems like always are hanging out at his clinic. He used to be the director of rehab at USC for their athletic medicine department, which, which I just want to point out, my Longhorns whooped that ass this year in, in football. Um, and he continues to be an adjunct. And I, I know he still does a whole lot out there with the the Balkanese department and, and the PT department and teaches and does all sorts of stuff to help them. He got his BS in kinesiology with an emphasis on ATC at UNLV, uh, his DPT from USC back in 07. And then he went on and did his orthopedics and fellowship in, in sports PT through the, the Kaiser Permanente program in, in LA. Uh, he's an athletic trainer, physical therapist with D1 athletics throughout the NFL, US Pro Beach Volleyball, World's Strongest Man. He also uh, publishes articles regularly in GSPT, he likes to throw out all his media in New York Post, ESPN, et cetera, and uh, speaks nationally. Uh, I don't know, probably internationally too, but but we always get to catch up at, at things like CSM, et cetera. And, and so Drew is also one of the pretty good guys on social media. So his Instagram is is the best place to get all sorts of cool content. It's at Modus, M-O-T-U-S specialist, uh, M-O-T-U-S-S-P-E-C-I-L-I-S-T-S. And then uh, just go to www.modusspecialist.com to, to check out his facilities. He's got a great website with, with some cool stuff there. So, Drew, my man, he's going to try for that intro today, man. It's not going to happen. So. <laughs> so, hey, man, I need to add the uh, I need to add one more credential after that. It's uh, the BFRC. BFRC. Yeah. OK. <laughs> I, I can't believe we don't have that up there already. When are we going to what are we going to do something where it uh, becomes official? certified uh well so i talked to justin moore at apta about that and and he said you know until it's a an accredited thing directly through apta that they don't recognize the the extra kind of initials there but he said it's it's totally fair if people want to go ahead and add that since they are have to do advanced training since it's not taught in school and so I, i know we get people ask us all the time can i put bfrc behind my name so um go for it man it's totally yeah, fair you, you you need more letters more, more alphabet than by, uh, longer so we met through my friend and your good friend stefania bell years yep. ago and, and so it, one one thing that struck me when we first met when you come walking up you only you could pull this out off la is wearing your suit with a pair of Jordans, right? That's right. Those are Jordans. That's right. <laughs> I'm a Jordan guy. I've always worn Jordans and wear them everywhere. I got married in Jordans. My you wife did? approved it. I did, yeah. And, and that was my gift to my groomsmen was a pair of Jordans that they wore at the wedding. Any specific Jordans that are memorable to you? Like these are these are the Jordans you got to have. Yeah, the Jordan 11 patent leathers. Those, those are the ones. Those are the ones I wore in, the, in my wedding, the all black ones. Okay. Gamma blues is what they're called, and then uh, and then kind of to stick with the color theme, um, my groomsmen got the altitude 13s, and so they're black with a little green on the bottom. So it was great, you know. We uh, we all look fresh at my wedding. I have no idea what you were talking about, man. Like, <laughs> if I wore that, my just Jordans alone, my wife and kids would give me so much crap for for weeks, man. So. Um, well, hey, man. Vice versa. If I wore cowboy boots, I would uh, I would be in trouble. <laughs> I would wear cowboy boots, man. I, I would give grief for even wearing that. So, um, but that that's a cool segue because that ties into this this new partnership 
with uh, the, the Jordan facility down there in LA. What's, what's the exact name of it? It's the Jordan Flight Lab Jordan. Okay. in uh, downtown LA. Um, so, so Jordan, the Jordan brand itself uh, used to have a Studio 23 down in New York. And um, when Carmel Anthony was there, he that was kind of his hub of playing basketball and them doing, you know, just workout trainings and, and all of that. And so um, that one, since when he left New York, it kind of kind of started falling through. Not too many people were, were using it as much. And so they wanted to find a new hub for Jordan brand athletes to go to when, you know, they're in town here in LA, you know, cause a lot of them either vacation here or have homes here. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to have a place where they could all come to, to train, uh, to play basketball and, um, have like a, a home site, if you will. So they, they designed this place down in downtown LA on Broadway, uh, next to Staples center specifically for, one is for Jordan brand athletes, the pro guys, but then also for there's about five high schools in L.A. that are sponsored by Jordan. So all of those teams can come out and, and train. And, and the way they design the facility is pretty remarkable. Um, the first floor, it's a three level building. And the first floor is all retail where it's all Jordan attire, shoes, all of that stuff. And then the second floor is uh, the performance lab. So there's that's what I was involved in and in, in helping uh, create and, and bring in partners. So they had, we put in uh, force plates, we put in a whole biomechanic system, motion analysis system. We have dumbbells, we have all the recovery stuff, all, um, you know, that's where uh, your involvement came in, in in terms of BFR and we have weights. We have all this new technology in terms of, um, you know, what we could use over there. One of them is the Kzine vector system which is like a, a vector system that is pulley system but you you can be very creative and how you want to use that so we have all that stuff there and then they have locker rooms on that second floor they have a customization uh area where like you pick a shirt and then you can customize it with any kind of uh, design you want on there and then the third floor is actually a full court uh, nba size uh basketball court and it's the flooring is pretty unique that they used a uh, glass floor from Germany. So it's the first glass court in the United States and they were able to, to raise it a little bit. So on the bottom of it is led lights. So you can play at night and the, the lines of the court light up so you can play at any time of the day. And, uh, awesome. it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that's sweet. And so, um, the sports science lab, is it more of the, you know, it sounds like the NBA experience, you know, we have BFR like pretty much in every NBA team now and, and all mm -hmm. this other technology that you're talking about. So is it, Hey, this is the sports science NBA experience. Come in, just kind of check it out and leave. Or is it like, we're going to test kids and train people and, and potentially even like rehab people there. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a testing site. So, um, you know, one of the big things is is combine training, if you will. So we have NBA or, or NFL will be doing testing there and training there. So they can do all of their workouts. <clears throat> we can get data on them. We can look at biomechanics. We can do strength training with, with BFR uh, safely. And and then the whole recovery side. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much like a one-stop shop for for these athletes um, that 
that Jordan wants to bring in and, and have affiliated with with the with their brand and with the facility. Nice, that's awesome, man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, how about how much time are you going to be spending there? You think? Um, you know, we're it literally just opened on ten. 18, uh, 20, 20, yeah. 10-20, yeah, it was the official opening. 10-18 was a soft opening. So it's essentially all Jordan brand. So it's a matter of like when people are coming in that, that my, you know, I'll, I'll be probably called in, kind of work with guys. But right now it's, it's you know, one of a facility that's just has all the equipment there. And then as needed, um, when, when different events come through or, you know, people are flying in that, that will all you know, all the sports science team will come in and, and start working on some of the stuff. And Interscope Records is part of it too, right? They have a Yeah, so so Jordan's always had this partnership with Interscope Records and you know, that's where they're able to bring in different artists and things like that because the the, the site is not just a sports site. I mean, on um on ten eighteen there was a huge like DJ party and yeah, saw that. Music all around. Yeah, so they. they were, you, were you dorking out in your Jordans, man? <laughs> <laughs> I was acting cool, you know. Yeah, I was trying to be like Johnny Owen, it's a cool guy. Yeah, right. It's uh, hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no. So so they have a, a, an affiliation. I mean, they're they're really trying to co-brand and you know co-market as much as they can with different people, different places, and so I think. Uh, they're kind of leaving that door open for a lot of different partners in that sense. Cool. Yeah, man. So LA, but, but actually super cool that you can get your yeah. swag downstairs and then you got this like state of the art sports science and then even go upstairs and you've got like just the coolest freaking basketball court in the world. So, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, they want to really make it like a full experience. So like, you know, if you want to get your first pair of Jordans when you come into town, you come in, try them on. They have it would, like, be, it uh, would be my first pair. That would be yeah, awesome, they, man. They have like trial pairs that, that people wear. Then you go upstairs, you work out in it to the second floor. You know, you do some, uh, you know, Vertimax testing. You do some biomechanics, biomechanics testing. And then like, you know what? I, this feels really good. Let me, let me go shoot around a little bit. Then you go to the third floor, you shoot around with it. Cause you know, you're buying it to play basketball. And then, um, you got the full experience there because you'll either work out with it, you'll play basketball in it, and then you go ahead and uh, make that purchase. Nice. It's crazy. Yeah. And so it's, it's fully open to the public now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now it's fully open. The, the first floor first is. Floor. Yeah. So the second floor and third floor are, you know, that's kind of a little bit more monitored. Yeah. Um, but definitely the, the retail store is available. All right. Yeah. Super cool, man. So I am a, uh, I'm psyched to to be able to, to partner with with you guys and with Jordan on this, and so uh, it sucks I missed the the grand opening, the whole red carpet thing or whatever. I but know. I don't, I don't. Um, yeah. But Priorities, man. I, I know. So, anyways, <laughs> next time I'm there, let's go. I want to go see it all. So definitely, we'll be there soon and check it out. So, okay, cool. So, so Drew with his million things going on, that's that's sweet. So that's this new direction. So let's let's go back. So take me in the way back machine here, a, a young Drew wearing Air Jordan number threes or whatever, uh, <laughs> going to USC. So so you graduated USC and, and then just started up there in the athletic department or the clinic? No, so I, uh, yeah, I graduated USC in 2007 and I, I knew that I, I needed to learn more and I knew I needed to get better. So I did an orthopedic residency with Kaiser Permanente mm -hmm. and um, I knew I wanted to do sports 
And so, you know, a lot of people say they want to do sports, but you know, it's, it's hard to really do sports fully. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something I kind of really had a passion for because I knew growing up that I wasn't going to make it to the NBA. So I thought, well, what's the closest thing? Let me be the guy that's, you know, on the court when they get hurt. And so I'll be the, the next one up, if you will. So I knew I wanted to do sports. So then after I did my orthopedic residency, I did a sports fellowship with Kaiser Permanente the second year after mm-hmm. graduating. So kind of, it took me a lot of time and education from there. Actually, after that, my after my sports fellowship, again, I knew I needed to, to kind of hone in on a lot more movement because sports is all about movement. And so I took a movement links course with Claire Frank back in 2010. And then uh, the job opened up at USC Athletics at, at the end of the summertime of 2010. So I was with Kaiser up until then and then uh, decided to make the jump over to athletics and became the director of rehab for all of the sports teams, the 21 Division One sports for USC. Yeah, it's a massive program there. So Yeah, very big. Yeah, so I, I was there uh, for five years. It was great, you know, learned a lot. Russ Romano, who's the head athletic trainer, great guy. And yep. we kind of we connected right away and, and worked w- very well together. Nice. as well as the whole athletic training staff. And then, um, you know, just from there, I kind of knew I wanted to grow a little bit more, do a little bit more things on my own and, uh, and kind of start seeing more uh, professional athletes on the, on the traveling circuit as well. So it, about f- after five years at USC, I, I, I left and it was a big, big move for me and um, started Modus Specialist Physical Therapy. Nice. Yep. Was that was that nerve-wracking, man? Leaving a big giant institution. Yeah, man, it was, it was huge. And I had, you know, I'm married. I, I just had my couple years. I had my second child, so it was like, you know, are we gonna really, are we gonna really do this right now? And um, you know, it all worked out. You know, thank God, everything uh, was great. And yeah, it was a hard transition that first year, but um, it's it's been awesome ever since. Yeah, man, you're blowing up. So it's the best thing I, I think you probably could have done for your career. But, dude, I, I'm with you. When I told my wife, hey, I'm, I'm going to probably leave the government. This Kush, you know, <laughs> can never get fired job. Are you cool if we sell the house and move into an yeah, apartment? Right? Yeah, which which we did. She's just like, Wait, what are you talking about, man? So um, That's hilarious. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a big move, man. I mean, I think um, – you know, a lot of the young PTs, they, they, they talk to me and say, you know, I want to start my own business. And I'm like, you know what, like no one teaches you all these things in PT school about running a business. I mean, I think it's different in chiropractic school because they have to kind of live on their own kind of a thing. There's no referrals from doctors to chiropractors. So it's, it's much harder for them. Yeah. But as a PT, I mean, you don't, no one teaches you anything about business. And, uh, you know, I tell them, you know, like make sure you know, you can really handle this and you're able to give up a lot because it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so many people want to do it like right off the bat, you know? Yeah. Like I, mean, right. I want to start my own cash practice or whatever. It's like, man, I mean, I mean, kind of the way you and I both did it you know, long, you know, years of, of working it and fellowships yeah. and stuff like that. And right, you know, yeah. I think also once you get that Rolodex kind of deep of, mm-hmm. you know, I know all these people that I can call on and they can help me out and, you know, send people my way and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's, I think it's all about relationships at the end of the day. I mean, um, you know, like what, what, you know, can only take you so far in the sense that, 
you know, there's a lot of good physical therapists out there, but you know, can you relate to to people and, and you have good rapport with people? And, and I think that's what um, that's what really makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. So once you started Modus, how did you kind of get Modus into being Modus, like these high end clients and stuff? Did you already have those connections from USC? And, and, and I, I mean, it's kind of like with me, you know, once I, I start working with a few teams, then a few more teams started calling and then it, it just snowballed. Is that kind of what happened? You had kind of a, a marquee person. Yeah. So my, my first marquee person was uh, Russell Wilson from Seattle Seahawks. Never and, heard of uh, him. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, uh, you know, just another guy quarterback. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was, I was introduced to him by a good friend, uh, Ryan Flaherty, who's a, a train, a strength coach, personal trainer, kind of a guy. And he, it's interesting. His, uh, I was at USC and um, his girlfriend was a, a track athlete. And so we kind of connected because she had an injury and, and, you know, she's like, you know, your, your methods and style would work great with, you know, how my, my boyfriend thinks. And so we kind of connected and then it kind of just grew from there. And, and so I started working with Russell just, you know, one or two times in LA just cause he was in town and, and, you know, he kept calling me back and wanted me to, to come see him. And then it kind of just grew from there. And I was, I was with him for about two years, flying up to Seattle a couple days a week when I was starting my own business at Modus, and so it kind of just grew from there. And then, uh, you know, he, his his uh, his wife is Sierra, and her best friend is Lala Anthony, uh, Carmelo Anthony's wife. And so, uh, um, Russ had a pretty major knee injury uh, about two years ago, so we were able to uh, get him back and and. And it was funny because uh, ESPN, you know, did this whole thing, you know, like, is he going to miss a game and all this stuff? And and then it all came out where there was a physical therapist living in his house, uh, you know, all this stuff, <laughs> you know, waking him up in the middle of the night and all that. I don't know where all that stuff came from. But uh, is the but yeah, audio so, write that up? No, no, no. A local a local uh, ESPN rep uh, uh. down in uh, Seattle, he, he, you know, he called me like, asking like what are we doing to, to get him ready is he gonna miss a game and and russ actually didn't miss one game that whole season he had two two big injuries so word got out and he's like you know what did what did russ do what did russell do to to kind of help him get get better not miss a game and so the wives were talking and and uh i got a call from from mellow and and we've been working together since new york about three three years ago now so yeah. uh it's yeah. been fun yeah, you guys seem close, man. Yeah, yeah, he's a really good guy. I mean, one of the, one of the better guys out there, and um, it's just all all kind of started developing from there, and you know, other guys started popping up, you know, wanting to to get work because they all end up knowing each other. You know, no one's these pro guys don't look on Instagram or uh, my website for anything. You know, it's like who's a, who's a guy that they other guys trust and yeah. you know that do a good job and and. You know, I've been very blessed to uh, to have been working with a bunch of guys, traveling to AB, Antonio Brown with the Steelers, and you know, all these guys all over the place. It's it's been it's been fun. Well, it's, they, it's you look all hip and cool, rolling in in your suit and your Jordans, and so they're like, this guy, man, he he, you know, he shoes, knows what it's shoes, about. The shoes, yeah, the shoes make a big difference, man. They know you know you know they know you know your your, your, your swag. Your swag. All right. It's crazy too. Like that, hap the whole media when you're there, and and somehow local media jumps on it. 
Because that's what yeah. happened with the when I was with the Steelers. We left and ESPN Pittsburgh somehow reached out. We found out there was some social that one of the players is putting uh -huh. out there. And he's like, hey, you got to comment on this guy's injury. And we're and I'm like, whoa, how the hell did you get my number? You know, like <laughs> I'm going to comment on anybody's right. injuries, man. It's, it's crazy. Right. And so yeah, no, it's, it's crazy how it all comes together. Here's a here's a weird question. But um, I, I think I reached out to you because athletes will will call us, especially in the early days where we were just getting BFR going and like, hey, man, you know, you worked with my team. Now my boy up at this team, he's injured and they don't they're not doing your BFR stuff there. Is there someone around in that area? And this is it was, um, you know, up in up in a northern area, not a huge city. And I'm like, yeah, I've got this guy, man. Um, he just he, you know, he just got trained and does all this stuff. So the athlete calls him, calls his secretary, and he's like, hey, will you come see, you know, can I come see you or whatever? And he calls me freaking out. He's like, what do I charge a pro athlete, man? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't charge. I charge the team. And so uh, I called you and I'm like, what's a, what's your rate, man? How do yeah. you figure out what to charge these guys? So is that a hard subject? What, are you just like, this it is. is I mean, it, it, at the beginning, it really was. I mean, that was one of the biggest uh, struggles was really figuring out, especially when I was starting Modus, because I wanted to build a brand. And, mm -hmm. you know, having the clients as, you know, as marketing tools, if you will, yeah. and, and branding tools was was a big thing for me. So, um, you know, it was more than just about money it was it was really about, you know, doing a good job and building that relationship. Because yeah. in my mind, I knew that if I did a good job, it would it would lead to some other, you know, stuff. And so um, that was really hard and because, you know, I wanted to, to, to make it in that world. And, uh, but now like, you know, three years in, like there's you set prices. Yeah. yeah. I put my feet down. If, if they don't want to do it, then it is what it is. I'm good. Just, you know, being in the clinic and, and running my, my own thing here in Newport beach. So it has, it's not one of those things anymore where I'm uh you know, totally crunched on, on it. And I remember that phone call you gave me. I'm like, man, it's, it, that's, a, that's the toughest question, you know? <laughs> well, you're in LA and he's in this other, like not LA city. I'm like, right. You know, right. Rates might be just different in general. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Yeah. So, and I'm with you, man. Like I did a bunch of pro bono right off in the early days and just told the teams like, Hey, if you like this and like what I did, would you mind just telling another team about it? And you know, this is whole, give and take that, that people have to understand with business too. It's, you know, you can't just be, I'm, I'm yeah. Louis Vuitton and this is the price and it never changes. Right. You know, I mean, and that's, and that's kind of where you have to compromise at some ex extent, you know, you have to know some athletes are, you know, financially, they're not as well off as some other guys. And, um, you know, now it's to the point where some of these, you know, celebrities that I see and pro athletes that I see, it's like, Money's never even brought up. It's just something I just bill to their uh, their agent their or whatever financial, financial yeah. guy. Yeah, and it's it's like you know I think that's always a sticky subject with anybody. And so if I can avoid it as much as possible, yeah, then then it'd be it's great. Yeah. You know? So do you take insurance too, or are you all cash? So I take insurance for professional athletes. Yeah. Only. Yeah. So uh, either NFL, MLB, or NBA. When when I see them in my office. But when I travel, it's a it's a cash based thing. Yeah. Um, just because you know, there's the insurance. There's no way they could cover everything on when I travel. But in the office, yeah. So if we get, you know, we get now that uh, you know, MLB season's coming to an end. You know, 
just the two teams that are left. You know, a lot of people are coming in now, and so that's all insurance-based and NFL offseason. And when people get hurt, we do the workers' comp thing. So we get a, we're right next to where the Chargers facility is, so we see a lot of uh, the Chargers as well. So, you know, yeah, it's it works out for them because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the pro guys are the ones that are always questioning about money. So yeah, I know. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing, man. They, uh, you know. It's hard to judge, you know, all that stuff, but uh, you know, you tell them you, you take insurance and they're with you five days a week. I know. <laughs> uh, but if you tell them it's it's a cash price, they're uh, you know, I'll I'll just uh, stay at home kind of. Yeah, thing. which is crazy, man. It's, it's nuts. nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. Everyone thinks that oh, you work with this team, you can bill them a million dollars. Like, dude, yeah. you don't even know. I'm, I'm begging them to pay us half the time. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, where where where's this bill at? I'm <laughs> I'm like following up with. You know, insurance agents and all. I'm like, man, just. I'm gonna have to send a collection letter to this freaking high end athlete. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, how much are you uh, traveling nowadays? Is it still a lot, or? I've kind of cut it down a little bit more. You know, I have, I have three employees now at Modus. um, So, you know, it's been great to have them on my team, and they're able to to hold the fort uh, when I'm when I am traveling. But you know, more with more when it's necessary, if you will. So, like. You know, I'll get I'll get some calls about traveling here and there, but you know, if it's if it's not following a specific injury, if you will, and it's just like, hey, you know, can you come out? You know, usually those guys wouldn't want to pay what the the rate is, so it's it makes it easier to just be like, you know, does this work for you? If not, then then we're good. Yeah. But if someone has like an injury or they have uh, you know something going on that's more uh, drastic than um, then yeah, you know, we'll make it we'll make it work where yeah. where there's some things that we can, you know, figure out timing wise. I mean, there's just so much stuff happening here now in LA with I guess, you know, the Jordan brand was going on and <clears throat> my facility with some of these guys that, you know, got injured during the season that take a little bit more precedent right now in terms of yeah. staying local. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, you're in Newport Beach, so you also take care of all the Real Housewives of Orange County, right? That's your that's your main clientele. I know that's what you want to see when you come over to down in Orange County. You're like, hey, make sure when I come, the Real Housewives come over. Yeah, no, man, they're too uh, blonde for me. <laughs> no, I mean it's uh, it's it's great. You know, the Orange County community is is really, you know, they're very uh, fitness related. You know, they're all either not just in terms of. Um, wanting to outwardly look great but they they really want to stay fit and stay active and be there for their kids and stuff and so we kind of knit our niche over here at modus is you know we were we're more for that lifestyle of active people so we don't we don't necessarily we, we always see that we we could take them but usually they're not the ones that are willing to pay cash in terms of someone who just is a how like desk job and yeah. has an injury or neck pain or back pain Usually that's not our clientele. It's usually that same person who has a desk job, but then also runs marathons on the weekends. Yeah. And and so that's where we've kind of differentiated ourselves in the community as more of the higher level active, you know, wanting to get back to karate or jujitsu, whatever they want to do. And they have an injury that, that we can, we can help. That's uh that's the best patients too, right, man? You set up a yeah. niche. It's very, very good. Yeah. It is. And I think that's what, uh, that's kind of what has been my goal in being a cash-based practice. You know, there's always there, there's always the trouble with that. You know, it's never, it's never super easy. I mean, if we were, if we took insurance, I mean, we would be 
you know, I would have to open up multiple sites because, you know, we get, we get calls all the time. People want to come in, but they only want to use insurance. So, you know, we kind of have to let them know what we're about, what the difference you'll find with us versus other clinics. You know, there's no aids or assistance with us. And, you know, you're one-on-one -on -one with the PT for the whole hour. So it's kind of a different thing that maybe they have to experience at the insurance level first and be like, you know, we don't want to, I don't want to go to an aid for, for 45 minutes. Yeah. You know? Waste your time, pay all those copays. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's essentially what we say. I mean, you pay your copays for three months and you pay us for a month and we'll, you know, save time. You probably end up saving money um, because you Much know, at the end. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think people are beginning to realize that because I think more people are going into the, the cash based model. Yeah. It's still, I think within five years, like insurance, the reimbursement's just so bad right now, especially yeah. here in LA that it's, um, you know, people are, are realizing that it's, it's, it's not the way to go. Yeah. So I think that model in itself has always been, been, you know, what I really wanted to, I didn't want to lose track of that when I started my business and, and it was always hard, you know, it's hard because, you know, there's only, there's only that it's a certain niche as well of clients, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get out of a hundred, it's probably 20%. So you have to be able to work with that 20% and, and that 20% then refers another 20%. Yeah. I was going to say that clientele is probably so much word of mouth. Um, you know, exactly. a lot of that. Yeah. So what do you yeah. think makes you like, if I'm going to go and say, whoa, modus is different from, from a clinician's perspective, it, it sounds like, and it's, it's a very USC type of thing, uh, you know, very biomechanically driven. Do you think that's kind of a big part of your will? I, mean, I know you're a movement guy, but people throw yeah. that around. It's like, well, what does that mean? Are you an FMS yeah. guy? Are you? A, you yeah, know, exactly. Whatever? Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's what um, really, that's what I really, you know, talking to Shirley Sarman and, and a lot of those people that have been around for a long time, you know, one of the big things that I've always kind of noticed is, you know, when someone asks, what's a physical therapist, you know, when you ask around the public, they're like, oh, they're, they're, you know, they do massage massages, or, you know, yeah. they do uh, exercises or they do um, torture, you know, whatever, torture. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, they, they use this scraper and it really hurts. And that's what, that's what a physical therapist is. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things for me was what, what are like, when you think of a dentist, you know, you know, they work with teeth you, know, you think optometrist, they work with the eyes. But when you think of a physical therapist, what are we like, what are, what do we specialize in? And I think that's where I kind of gained a lot from, from Shirley was, you know, we're movement specialists. Like that's what we do. Like we can watch someone walk and we can figure out what's wrong with them. We can see someone throw a ball and figure out what's wrong with them. So we we're based on movement and, and modus, that's where modus came from. Uh, modus is Latin for movement, and so I really wanted movement in my name, in my business name. Uh, but obviously, like movements used all over the place, so like movement was taken. All these, you know, common words of movement was taken uh, when I was when I was, you know, first starting it. And uh, I really wanted a a one name thing, uh, you know, like Pepsi, Coke, Nike, you know. Mm -hmm. Branding. I'm thinking, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking big, I'm thinking big scale, like, you know, one of those companies. Of course you are. Yeah. So that's where Modus came from. And so, you know, essentially we're, we're based on movement. I mean, that's what really differentiates us. Um, I was trained in, in dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, but that's just one of the things that I train in, but it's not all that I do. And so a lot of DNS is based off of primitive patterning and how 
babies move and how you know that's all innate in the brain so no one's teaching a baby how to turn or crawl so we know that in a healthy baby it's in the brain at, at, at some level so it had it never went away so when we train an adult or an athlete we use those same movement patterns as a baby and you kind of get great results in terms of you know how they move how what muscles contract where is the stabilizing segment versus the the moving segment so um you know when when i have my, these like 300 pound nfl players doing these baby movements you know they're struggling you know after like six reps because they're they're they've been so used to training in a weight room where they're benching or curling or something in a static position that dynamically they've never really turned on multiple segments at one time right so we really kind of i you know I, have my staff trained in it and um that's how we practice and and we apply we apply all methods i mean you know manual therapy dns stuff developmental kinesiology so it's all it's all kind of intertwined rather than just being a one focus clinic and this is all we do and this is how we do it um you know usc's usc's great they're they're very heavy on on manual uh therapy but then when you look at you know wash you they're very heavy on movement therapy yeah. and, and watching, you know, the, the syndrome. So taking both of those worlds and combining them together as one has kind of really helped uh, develop what, what modus is, nice. is kind of. Yeah. All about. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful way to, to do rehab and what we should all be doing. It, it's much more labor intensive and yeah. brain intensive and it wears yeah. you down. Um, right. that, that was with us at the center for the intrepid, you know, having to break down what every, what they call MOS, what every specific soldier has to do. Mm -hmm. Some guys, it's about, you know, working above their head all day on a plane, looking at that movement pattern and then right. how are you failing yeah. at that? Or I've got to move and, and rotate right all day because that's what I cover. Yeah. So, exactly. yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the big things too, is like, you know, being very, when we, when I say movement, it's, it's like, where, where is the problem lying? So we get a lot of, you know, quarterbacks, you know, that's kind of been like a, a, a more specialty niche for, for me as well as like being the quarterback whisperer, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of these guys come in with, you know, shoulder and, el and elbow pain. And at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with their shoulder or elbow. When we really look at the whole movement system, the whole kinetic chain, you know, they may be lacking, you know, dorsiflexion on their left ankle mm -hmm. that's causing them to, uh, you know, significantly rotate less and use all arm in that throwing right shoulder. So, you know, we look at the elbow, it's not just treating the side of the area like like tendonitis or or something like that. It's really looking at okay, why my big thing and what I, you know, always teach the students and, and my staff is we always have to ask ourselves why why we have this pain. Why do they have this pain? Why are they coming in here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have patella tendonitis, but but why? Like you don't just wake up one morning and you have patella tendonitis. It's not a, a right. systemic thing. It's a it's a biomechanical thing. Right. And so if we can really figure out why, then we'll do our job better. Because anyone can treat patella tendonitis on the surface, you know, and they'll get better over time just because that's the way our body heals. But if they go back to doing their activity or their sport, their patella tendonitis is going to come back if we never addressed why they had the tendonitis in the first place. Right. Whether it's coming from their hip, their trunk, their ankle. And I think that's really what people see the benefit in is because, you know, we're really looking at the whole scope of it and, and not just like 
oh, you know, you have tendonitis, let's do some soft tissue and stretch you a little bit and, and you're good to go. Grab our shiny tools and, and scrape away, yeah. right? Exactly. So use all this you, fancy you tape. use technology um, to track motion at all? So any, any sort of biomechanical systems or stuff like that, or are you just visually looking at it? Yeah, just visually. I mean, um, we're not, we're not stacked to where we have a whole biomechanical system. Um, I'll rely if someone needs it, like coming out from ACL, you know, I'll refer over to, to USC and, and their staff. Yeah. Um, but really, really we're just, uh, using our eyes, using slow motion with simplicity of an iPhone and, and different apps that we can use on the phone. But really watching it slow and really seeing where when a softball girl comes in and she's throwing from second to first base, it's happening so fast that we have to look at it a little bit slower. And then from there, we could see, you know, is the pelvis not rotating enough or is there, you know, staying in internal rotation, causing, you know, less thoracic rotation. And so, you know, we we kind of make it simplified enough, but still applicable to how we can then relate it to each athlete and, and give them some feedback visually. Yeah. Through through recording on the phone and 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 it kind of really goes a long way just for them to actually see it. Nice. And so, where does blood flow restriction kind of fit into your arsenal? Is is there? Are you doing it more yeah, for no, weakness? We, we don't really use it that much, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just sitting there. It's just for looks. Uh, all uh, right. Can you send those back? <laughs> <laughs> no, we we definitely. Uh, it's a tool that we use literally at the end of every rehab, you know, whether it's someone post-surgical or it's someone that um, has, you know, significant weakness in, you know, one, one body part. I mean, I think, I think that when people really try that, they really see the difference in what we're doing because, you know, we're not just, just sitting there trying to, you know, do quad sets or knee extensions. And, you know, it's going to take forever to, to kind of get something, get that muscle back, the quad back. But, we're really applying, you know, what, what I learned from, from you, uh, which was very little, but I, you know, then applied, <laughs> but then I applied, you know, like what, what, you know, we've done in the past with what we're doing with some research and really kind of being creative with, with some of these programs that, that we've created in yeah. terms of, you know, exercises and, and, and rest time versus uh, active time. Um, to really see the benefit in, in a lot of these things. And, you know, one thing that we do use blood flow restriction for is, is and I don't think we really talked about this, you know, years ago when we, when we took the course, when I took the course, but mm -hmm. using it more for joint mobilizations. Because mm -hmm. you know, I found that, you know, if I want to get, you know, more ankle dorsiflexion or, or hip mobility, I'll put that on, the blood flow on, and then do my manual therapy with it on mm -hmm. and, and really compound that with the second set of a strengthening exercise. Uh, I've seen kind of great results that way because I'm trying to move the ankle, you know, with, with less blood flow in it. It's shown to have like I've remeasured and it's all clinical data, but yeah, uh, gotten more range of motion or someone that's had lack of knee extension following surgery, putting the, the, the cuff on and doing extension mobilizations is really it really made a difference. I just had a client yesterday doing that and got all the way down to the, the table. And we thought, you know, this wasn't going to move. She might have to go in yeah, to get like a manipulation or something. Yeah. You know, and, and who knows the mechanism there? There's a lot of different theories, but yeah. that's the same. Um, and one of our, one of the orthodox who does, I, I've been told 
the most ACLs in the country down in Houston, they were saying the same thing with these, these post-op knees. Sometimes they're lacking extension, even when it looks like it's passively stuck. Um, mm-hmm. It's very stiff that, you know, if they're doing going for that extension with blood flow restriction, that, that they get it back. And um, they have a huge trial going on right now. And so um, it, it'll be interesting to see what our range numbers look like if, if it is improved. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's yeah. a different, different way to skin the cat and think about it. Um, you know, it's this thing too, like myostatin and, and TGF beta there, it's a fibrotic pathway. And, and we're seeing that after injuries, that stuff is upregulated and you get fibrosis in the muscle and in the joint. And Johnny Heward's group is looking at pharmacologically taking it down, but BFR looks like it takes it down too. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, you could even be seeing that there's, there's less fibrosis. Um, it might yeah. be open too. So who knows? Because yeah. that's always this. You know, when you get this stuck ankle that's like in dorsiflexion. It's, you know, it's as you ask people like, what, what do you do to get that motion back? It's kind of all over right. the place. So yeah, and then, and again, we, I mean, it's using a lot of different you know theories that I've kind of learned throughout my my career, mm-hmm. but now applying those with the BFR. Nice. You know, so it's like a combination of of treatments, and so that's really that's really been uh, really helpful in the sense of trying to get the best bang for our buck in that hour that we have to really see differences. Cause I think, you know, once uh, someone sees a difference like that, then, you know, they're bought in, they're locked in, you know, they're like, okay, you know, this is, this is a real deal. Like we'll be back, you know, multiple times. No one that's done a BFR session usually leaves and feels like something wasn't done to them. Right. Yeah. You're, you're hoping they come back because you didn't do too right. much. Like, holy shit. Right. Um, yeah. And I guess we should touch on, too, there is the USC uh, research that you're involved with um, mm-hmm. in a big way, um, looking at looking at some hamstring muscle yeah. damage and recovery uh, and, and based on some anecdotal stuff from the Rams that, that we saw as well. So Yeah. So we're definitely trying to look to see if what we know from, you know, eccentric training uh, to build muscle is is that something which causes always the soreness and people you know taking time to recover from can we get that same you know strength gain using the BFR with only you know since you know knowing the science of BFR only 30% of their one rep max right so being able to strengthen at 30% with the BFR will that give us the same results as trying to strengthen someone to build muscle at regular, uh, right. you know, training. And um, so far we've seen really good results. And um, obviously it's one of those things that, that takes time, but we're really applying it to on, on Modus's end. We're applying it to these professional athletes that are, you know, have, you know, strength deficits that they can't really function on a soreness level because, you know, they're in competition or they're always have to, they're always training. Right. So, so strengthening at 30%, which is, you know, for them very little, uh, but they still get the same muscle build and uh, hypertrophy is what we're, we're looking at. Yeah. So we're using that with the, with the body. Yeah. That in body is a, a very cool, fancy way for us to measure muscle damage changes non-invasively, mm-hmm. which was great too. helped us get through the IRB much easier, <laughs> but <laughs> But that's what, so, you know, so Paul Silvestri, University of Florida, years ago, that's where we first started noticing this was with their hamstring injuries. We, we wrote a, a little kind of fluff piece in, in, a, in a magazine journal about it. But um, um, that's what people don't, you know, everyone's, you know, eccentrics are hotter than a, than a sunburn right now. But 
but it's that thing. You got this injured guy. He's in season. You go do some sort of heavy centrics on him, Nordics or whatever. The dude's done for weeks. Yeah. And no I was with one pro soccer and, and their coach was like, I don't want my players to do it even healthy doing those anymore because the players are always feeling this nagging kind of soreness in their hamstrings. And so right. maybe right. off season, yeah. but we got to find a different way in season. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's something that even in the off season, I think people don't want to be knocked out for, for a significant amount of time Yeah, um, because they have training to do. I mean, there's, there's really no off season for these guys and maybe like a couple of weeks, maybe after the Super Bowl, but on the NFL side, I mean, they're, they're back training and working out like pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. And so yeah. if they have any kind of injury or anything lagging, then they can't, they can't be held back or out for because of, of muscle soreness for that long. Yeah. Um, and so on the rehab side, being able to apply this really makes a big difference because, you know, I tell them like, Hey, look, we're not even, we're not even pushing any weight here, mm-hmm. you know? So you're getting the same kind of workout that you can be getting in the weight room you know, twisting it more for the rehab side, not, we're not, we're not personal trainers or, or strength coaches, but you know, Hey, you know, we, we can really apply this uh, as a way to help build strength without, you know, causing a lot of uh, soreness or damage. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's awesome. So I'm excited to see where those results. Yeah. Um, and it seems like when I was there last couple of months ago, we got some promising pilot data already. So yeah, we'll see you, man. Yeah. Well, dude, yeah. all right, we're going, we're going long here. I knew, I knew you would ramble forever. But, uh, <laughs> so, anything else you want to add that, that you can think of discussing with Modus um, or think, the new Jordan I think, facility? Well, I think, I think another thing, you know, and you know, when I was in PT school, we never got this, but we're, you know, able to teach it more to the younger DPT students now. So we're applying it over at USC. I'm uh, helping get the word out for you, doing a little. Uh, guest lecturing at USCF. So I think that's huge. I mean, I think more yeah. PT schools should really, even though they can't get a unit, I think what's happening now is more, more clinics are getting units. And so when people, when students do their rotations, that time in the clinic shouldn't be the first time that they're actually seeing the, uh, the equipment. So I think it's really good that schools are, are getting more involved in, in wanting to learn more, even though it may not be like actually using it all the time, but, uh, you know, as long as they get some uh, some type of exposure to it, I think is great. Yeah, the writing's on the wall. So um, I, th- I think it's awesome. Like USC is obviously a leader and, and they're doing it. UT Health Science Center here. Um, we do some advanced courses. I also lectured a few other places around the country, introducing it and guys like you, obviously, who are kind of the clinical experts now. Um, the APTA captain meeting, uh, looking at what's going to be on accreditation for schools just happened in, in BFR was one of the top ones of trying to see how they can roll it into PT students are taught that in school, um, roll right. it out. So it's, it's going to happen. So no, yeah. I think, I think if you should be exposed early on. So yeah, cool, man. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited. I want to come check out this, our new Jordan thing and uh, yeah, definitely. You know, go upstairs and whoop your ass with my cowboy <laughs> boots on and some basketball. Um, are you at CSM this year? Or next year, whatever in February. Yeah, yeah, in DC. Yeah, DC? presenting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, presenting on one of the days. I don't know which day, but yeah, we right. have our crew with Stefania Bell again. I know. I know. So I, I got that whole week. It's Extremity War Injuries Conference first part of the week, and then the last part of the week, I'll be there at CSM. They're all in DC, so oh, I'm nice. gonna be hanging out there. So we got to chill out this year, <laughs> all right? <laughs> 
Seriously, we can't, uh, we can't a, do what we did last year. So let That's me end it on this story, all right? So for one, we're in New Orleans, which is already trouble. And I used to live there, so um, I, was, I was ready to just kind of show you guys a, a night and go crazy. <laughs> we ended up at a bar. Um, remember the crazy bartender who uh, oh, man. was yeah. just like on some sort of drugs and <laughs> yelling at us? <laughs> We couldn't even get a drink or something. <laughs> you were worried you couldn't get your credit card back. So anyways, <laughs> we went crazy, crazy. And so um, at the end of the night, y'all, I think y'all kept going to go gamble or something in Harrah's. And, and I went home. Yeah. So I, I didn't give a talk in the morning. And, uh, yeah, you're weak sauce, man. You get it. So yeah. you're, you, I pulled up the phone and you, <laughs> your text said, I literally had to walk home sideways last night. <laughs> <laughs> Walking sideways, like with your hands on the wall. But I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how I got. I don't know how I got back to my hotel room. I have no idea. It, it might have not been your room. But one of the <laughs> one of the girls with us, she wanted to go to dance at a, at a gay bar. Do you remember that? And, <laughs> she's like, and she's like, "Well, you're from here. Where are the gay bars at?" I'm like, "I don't. Why would I know where the gay bars are at to go dancing?" So, anyways, I don't remember it, but I guess I looked it up on my phone because. Uh, when I picked my phone up in the morning and turned it on, <laughs> on Google and said, where are the gay bars in New Orleans? <laughs> so I cleared the history. I didn't want my daughters and my I wife think, to uh, see that when I got home. I think you may have secretly went there on your own. I might have. I don't remember. I could have, man. But it's all good. It's all good. Uh, New Orleans is a, is a tough place to be, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, we'll be too cold up in D.C. to, to – to right. Too crazy. Right. Yeah. It, it should be fun, though. We'll yeah. Yeah. All right. So we'll hook up if I don't see you before. Um, all right, brother. It's been great. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. And okay, uh, we'll be in touch soon. So everyone, if check out Modus. I mean, this, dude, if you want to see this is the PT life. Modus is it. You're doing things right. Cash pay. Taking care of Rural Housewives of Orange County. Um, but but no, check out it, it, his Instagram. has got great stuff, like cool content to help people. So I appreciate you, man. All right. Appreciate you guys. All right. Bye. All right. Welcome back. And so we're going to we're going to take a couple of questions that have been submitted to us from the podcast. Uh, if you have questions, hit us up at info at owensrecoveryscience.com. We, we love getting these questions. If if we take your question and answer it on on the podcast, uh, you get a sweet, nice, not a cheap, flaggy Owens Recovery Science Earn Your Deflate T-shirt. So please keep your questions coming. So here's the first question. This is from Matt. I'm wondering if there's any additive effects of creatine supplementation with BFR, i.e. is there greater increases in muscle cross-sectional area or strength gains beyond what you'd expect with just regular resistance training? Given the different mechanisms behind both types of training, I thought maybe an identical creatine dosing protocol may have different effects based on the type of training being performed. Is there any research on this topic? Is it something you've seen anecdotally in your clinic setting? By the way, I'm loving the podcast. Keep it up. So awesome, Matt. Thanks for thanks for loving the podcast and, and listening. So so creatine, you guys have thoughts on it? I mean, obviously there's there's no real research looking at BFR with creatine versus traditional lifting with creatine that I've seen. No. Uh, I, I could be wrong there because there's a ton of research and I feel like I'm always trying to catch up on what's coming out. I don't know in my mind that there's enough that say you know, the creatine supplementation itself would, would drive a, a really significant change if you had traditional heavy lifting versus BFR. I mean, it looks like BFR from a hypertrophy standpoint might win a little bit anyway, I guess, depending on, on how you're approaching it. But yeah, I don't, 
I don't know enough to say that it would be significantly different in my mind. Well, and so you're right. Obviously, we don't have any creatine and BFR data out there. We, we do have a lot of anecdotals because, you know, working with all these pros and college teams and just athletes, um, a lot of them take creatine, uh, but, but we can't really take away, you know, are, are they making significant hypertrophy changes or strength changes just because they're on creatine? So there, there is maybe some, again, translational stuff we can look at with this. So old, old study, I think it's almost 20 years old, looked at in a rat model. So they, they basically removed the soleus and the gastroc. And they do these. We, we did it in a pig model. It's crazy. So they'll, they'll remove soleus and gastroc. And then they will do things to see, like we did East End, to see does the plantaris muscle hypertrophy significantly more. And these, the, like the plantaris will get crazy big sometimes in these animals. And so they were basically doing an exercise bouts with or without creatine after that. And then the rats that had the creatine on board had more hypertrophy and, and they had significantly more satellite cell content or stem cell content. And, and then that's been repeated in, in a human trial that when you take creatine, you do have more satellite cell content that, that's measured or, or stem cell content again. So if that's true, and we are really trying to go after those myogenic stem cells, the addition of creatine might bump that up a little bit and kind of supercharge it, which if you have more myogenic stem cells, that means it can equal more muscle cells, which means next time you're taking your protein bolus, you get you might get more muscle hypertrophy. And then there's also my, one of my favorite things, uh, this whole myostatin thing. There, there's at least one study that's shown that creatine did have a reduction in myostatin. So if myostatin goes down, your body is basically able to um, to, to put on more muscle. So less myostatin, good. And, and so those are those are a couple of mechanisms that we see both happen with BFR and creatine might be able to supplement that. So I, I, you know, I would say go for it with a caveat that we do have as a a risk factor on, on our, on our list. It's not a contra, but, but there is study out there of someone who developed rhabdo after surgery um, who was taking creatine supplements, but, but it was really, this person was, was being a knucklehead and taking very high doses of creatine. What was it? Was it like 10, 10, 10 grams? What is, I don't Yeah, 10 grams a day for six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, six, six. I think it was, yeah, leading up to the surgery, and then they developed rhabdo. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I so I would say go for it um, and do it the right way uh, if if you're interested in it. And and again, you know, just talking about protein is something we're going to talk about with our patients. We hope maybe talking about you know the the collagen based stuff pre tendon loading. Keith Barr's work is something that we'll talk about with our patients, and we'll get into that probably in a later podcast. But maybe if creatine increases satellite cell content and, and downregulates myostatin, that's a fair conversation if your patient is clear to, to use something like that. Again, you would, you would probably have to get medical clearance to discuss that with, with a patient. Any other thoughts on, on creatine and, and BFR, guys? I mean, I think it's like you're saying, it, it could be a good addition to BFR. I mean, it, it makes sense yeah. mechanistically, but... It, I think what you know what Matt was trying to ask is the comparison b- between BFR and light load with creatine versus heavy load with creatine, and would that be significantly different? Yeah, probably um, not. Probably not. Maybe maybe just a little bit of hypertrophy, right? Differences in in the BFR side, maybe. So so yeah, not sure. I, I asked Trisha, our our dietitian, her thoughts on it, and you know she said obviously there's there's no BFR research with it. But, but she did want to put this out. Creatine supplementation is like carb loading. 
that it increases the amount of nutrients used for this metabolic pathway. I would not recommend increasing the dose beyond the recommended dose for conventional training. BFR is intended to speed recovery from injury and creatine is intended to enable the individual to lift heavier weight with an added supply of the fuel source and subsequently increase muscle mass. I would recommend not starting creatine until an established BFR routine is undertaken to allow them to get used to the new training first. And I hate to rely on anecdotal evidence as people tend to overestimate the benefits of a supplement when it was actually just the work they were doing. One mistake people make with creatine is they only take it on workout days and they don't take it with carb. They need to take 0.03 to 0.1 grams a kilogram per day every day with 30 grams of carb within one hour post-workout when taken on workout days. And creatine in all caps, monohydrate. So <laughs> once again, Tricia, great answer. Um, and, and, and our certified providers, we have a, a private group and these kind of questions get thrown around all the time and, and folks like Tricia as well as us and, and all sorts of other experts will go on and, and help answer anyone's questions like this. So thanks. All right. So creatine, that's good. Maybe, maybe that's something we'll, we'll see um, from a study on down the line. The other questions from Jason and Jason says, what's the overall consensus on using BFR when in someone's in a cast specifically in a lower limb cast from the knee down? So you guys thoughts on that? I think, yeah, on, on I, that front, we just I think, use our, go ahead, Kyle. Zach. Uh, Kyle, go ahead. Go ahead. I say, I think on that front, you know, you you look at those the the Kubota study and and the Linicky swelling studies, and you kind you kind of think in in the context of using the inflation deflation of the tourniquet uh, at some level to create a swelling response in the muscle. So we're using that that cell swelling mechanism that that we talk about with regard to being able to turn on protein synthesis and and fight that that disuse atrophy that you would see. In the limb, you know, as we teach in the course, of course, we always want to incorporate exercise. Um, and so the nice thing about like a lower limb cast that's below the knee is shoot, man, you can go after quad, you can go after hamstring, you know, with your BFR stuff or even lifting heavy uh, in, in that regard, at least in some cases. Um, and so I think, you know, you're looking for probably about five inflations, um, a, a minimum of around 25 minutes of, of restriction and then incorporating exercise where you can. That's that's how I do it in the clinic. Maybe it's a cycle. Maybe you're pedaling a bike. Maybe you're just kind of pumping them out on the total gym. Whatever, whatever you can be doing, you want to be doing. Right. And so the cellular swelling response is basically the muscle swells, which means the myocyte swells, which means you potentially are driving protein synthesis. We're not sure, but there seems to be a sparing effect of the muscle. And then so. The swelling right under the cuff is usually significantly more in, in the muscle just distal than, than really far away. So we don't see a ton of swelling. Um, it's almost like it's just more taut. Some people definitely swell more than others, but but you can tell there's a, a mild pump in the lower leg. So you know if you're worried about, well, it's going to cause way too much swelling and, and they're going to out, outgrow their cast here. Um, I've, I've never seen that, even even an NBA player that, that we had in a, in a full cast um, that seemed pretty tight. And so... That, that's not the problem. But like you said, Kyle, you can keep the upper limb strong just by applying the tourniquet and doing very light exercises. But the swelling effect on down the line might be a way to preserve less muscle loss, right? What, what was your thoughts, Zach? Yeah, I was, I was just really going to kind of say the same thing you guys did. I mean, the Kubota study did cast the mobilization at the ankle. And they did uh, the self-swelling protocol for uh, twice a day for two weeks. And 
you know, no, no reported adverse effects where they had to cut the cast off and redo the cast or anything like that. So I, I think from a safety standpoint, you're good. And then, you know, we have the muscle response, you know, as well. So whatever, you know, the concern was, whether it was safety or muscle, I think, you know, you're, you're good to go. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, where we started this the way we do it at the Department of Defense, the, the tibia is the most injured long bone from the wars. We had tons of lower leg uh, cam boots and casts and frames that, that we were doing BFR on like crazy without without any issues at all. It, it looks like uh, our study at Hospital Special Surgery um, on Achilles repair might be, might be ramping up. So hopefully we have a, an answer with Achilles, which will be fantastic. <laughs> If the first six weeks, while you're basically doing nothing, you're doing BFR to keep the thigh strong, but we're also slowing the atrophy train at the calf, that's 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 a huge win. And, and anecdotally, that's what we've seen um, in the professional leagues, college leagues, and, and clinically. So now we hope the clinical trial will, will back that up. All right. Any Anything else, you guys? Once again, we went long. What the hell is wrong with us? We, we're just ramblers. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's all I got. Oh, you got your word out. All right. Well, cool. Thanks, everybody. So if you like the podcast, please go on to iTunes or whatever your podcast platform is and, and, and rate us and, and, and give us any feedback. That would be awesome. Send us questions. Jason and Matt will be shooting off your T-shirts. And and I'm off to Kimchiville and, and hope to have some fun over in Korea. And, and you guys, safe travels. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.